Hey guys, it's Dr. Childs here. Today I am joined with Dr. Jill Carnahan. Dr. Jill Carnahan is your functional medicine expert. She uses nutrition, supplements, lifestyle changes, or medication to treat your illness and always seeks the gentlest and least invasive way to help you find hope, restore health, and optimize healing. Dr. Jill was duly board certified in family medicine from 2006 to 2016 and in integrative holistic medicine since 2005. Now, Dr. Jill also has a personal history with breast cancer and Crohn's disease, so she has a pretty significant history with uh, gut health, which is really what I want to be focusing on today. So, Dr. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be here with you. It's awesome to have you. And so I'm going a little off script here, but um, I, you probably don't know this, but um, ever since about 2014, when I was in residency, I looked to your uh, blog post and to your website, and I'm like, I want to be like her when I grow Aww. up. So, so you, you've been uh, you've been actually a really good source of information for me and um, throughout my professional life. So, um, like I said, you're not aware of that, but I, I'm very grateful for all that you do. And and for those mm -hmm. listening, she has a wealth of knowledge on her website in the form of blog posts, videos, podcasts, and so on. Um, so, uh, Dr. Jill, what I'd like to do is maybe could you tell us a little bit about your own personal history because I know you've you face some challenges and then that will kind of springboard us into a, a discussion, I think, on gut health and chronic infections. You got it. I, I do love the story because, you know, it makes it all worthwhile. I've been through a lot and, and mm -hmm. I've learned so much. It's like I'm the guinea pig for so many of these. Uh, basically, it comes down to I was a third year medical student at Loyola doing, you know, what I dreamed of becoming a doctor. And all of a sudden I discovered a lump in my breast. I was 25 mm -hmm. years old. So as you well know, the statistics of me actually getting breast cancer at 25 are like winning the lottery. And mm -hmm. I won the lottery and was told a few weeks later after a biopsy that I did indeed have a very aggressive form of ductal carcinoma or breast cancer, the most common type. Now, um, the interesting thing, which is relevant to some of our discussion is I grew up on a farm in Illinois and looking back, I had exposure to all kinds of endocrine disrupting chemicals that probably led to that early cancer. And then my genetics were really poor for detoxification. So it was kind of the perfect storm. And at 25 diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer. And then I proceeded to kind of fight the battle of my life. And I was always, even though I was in traditional medical school, I was very holistic minded. And if it would have been my choice and, and I thought that it would have worked, I would have maybe not done any conventional therapy. But what I did was choose to do the best of both worlds. And I had three drug chemotherapy, which was so toxic to the gut, but also maybe saved my life. Mm -hmm. And then I also did radiation and surgery. And so I did all of that. But while I did that, I consulted with a naturopath. I did meditation and prayer. I had all kinds of other things. And so I feel like I really pulled in both of uh, both worlds in my own care. And I really created my own treatment protocol. And here I am 20 years later, um, and doing great, living vibrant health, totally free of cancer and have been for 19 years. So I, it worked, right? Um, but I often say, I don't regret any of my choices. I remember when I chose to do the chemotherapy, I said, you know what, I'm going to do the best I can right now and never regret it. But the truth is those toxic chemotherapy drugs, which kill rapidly dividing cells all over the body, including the gut, um, have had a detrimental effect my entire life. And a lot of the um, things I've had to do in the last 20 years have been recovering, not from the cancer, but from the treatment I chose to do for the cancer. Yeah. And, you know, you hit a couple of things that I, I definitely want to jump into a discussion on here. But first of all, that's that's an impressive story. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry to hear about that. But also at the same time, it sounds like it really kind of led you to where you are now. So in a way, there's that silver lining there. Right. Um, but one thing that I that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned was this this concept of your genetics and then also how that manifests as disease in your body. So maybe could you talk a little bit about 
um, per perhaps what that meant for you, but also what that means for other patients, right? Because yeah. the way I'm kind of thinking about it is, and the way I kind of try to explain it to people is that you may have this underlying susceptibility to developing certain conditions or diseases, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily guarantee that you will get there, right? Yes. So you can kind of have this manifestation or potential manifestation. So could you talk a little bit about genetics and the role that it plays in gut dysfunction and immune problems and just health issues in general? You got it because, you know, I just have so much respect for every woman out there who's making decisions about breast cancer risk and history. Mm -hmm. But I also, because of this, if someone comes back with genetics that are high risk for um, breast cancer, I don't always recommend they have a bilateral prophylactic mastectomy mm -hmm. because again, we have choices in our environmental exposures that change the expression of genes. Now I had the perfect storm because I have all kinds of detoxification um, problems with my genetics. Um, and so I had that plus a toxic load very early, early in life, probably even I say in utero from my mother's exposures. So it yeah. probably started even before birth and led me to a very early diagnosis of cancer. But just because I had those genetics doesn't mean that you can't do things to change that. And now I feel like I'm living my best life. I'm actually probably healthier in my 40s than I was in my 20s and 30s. Awesome. One, one thing I didn't mention about the story, but goes right into the gut things was just six months after I finished all my treatment for breast cancer, got through, I was bald from the chemotherapy, but I was doing well. Um, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. Oh. And that as well, genetics and environment play such a role. I had the NOD2 gene, which is a high risk for Crohn's. And then as we talked about, the chemotherapy causes damage to rapidly dividing cells, which are some of the cells that line your gut. And so I had this perfect storm of basically a high risk. And what that means is with Crohn's or colitis or any of these inflammatory bowels, it's really just an abnormally aggressive response to a normal microbiome. Mm -hmm. So it kind of was a perfect storm because I had the aggressiveness of my in immune system. And then I had an insult from the chemotherapy that caused massive permeability or dumping of the bacterial contents into the immune system. And then it was the perfect storm to create Crohn's, which is these damage to the lining of the gut based on that immune reaction. And I recovered from that too and fully cured of Crohn's disease. So that was another experience, but that all, it's interesting because the gut relates to everything, doesn't it? It sure does. And, and honestly, that I think that's so important and such a great story that you could go and have a diagnosis of Crohn's disease, but also put it into remission, right? Because there's a lot of people listening to this. Um, I talk a lot, I talk specifically to a lot of people who have thyroid conditions. And yeah. so a lot of people with Hashimoto's, hypothyroidism, even Graves, post-thyroidectomy and post-RAI, they end up with a lot of gut issues. And um, it's, I think it's helpful to hear from other people that you can actually do something about these things, right? Because when I talk about it, I'm like, you know, I'll say, you know, you got to treat your gut, treat your gut. I'm sure everyone's heard yes. that, treat your gut, treat your yes. gut. Yes. Okay, we, we know it's important, but um, can you kind of explain a little bit about how, how important and why, what the gut is doing inside of the body? Why is it so important to treat the gut? And then we'll talk a little bit about how to do that. Can you talk a little bit about why it's so important? You got it. I love talking about this because it yeah. really relates whether you have lupus or MS mm -hmm. or Hashimoto's thyroiditis or Crohn's or colitis or rheumatoid arthritis, or I could name a slew of other autoimmune conditions. Mm -hmm. We know that autoimmunity um, based on Dr. Fasano's research is a triad, which means there's a genetic component. We can't always change that, but we can change the expression of the genes. Then there's an environmental trigger that could be gluten in the case of celiac or sometimes rheumatoid arthritis, or it could be some infectious trigger or some sort of environmental toxic trigger. Like in me, I think the chemotherapy and all of those kinds of things and the toxic chemicals from the farm were all environmental triggers. But the third thing is what you just mentioned, and that is the gut immune interface. So our tube that lines from our mouth to our anus is our 
basically external environment connection. Like that's how we are connected to the external mm -hmm. environment where the food goes down, where the bacteria resides. And whenever we have an impairment to those cells that line the gut and we have permeability, which is also called leaky gut, all of a sudden we get antigens like bacterial coatings or fungal coatings or other bugs or just inflammatory food molecules that aren't properly digested that leak into the bloodstream. It's only one cell layer thick between the gut lumen and the bloodstream. And if there's a barrier issue, like the chemotherapy caused in my um, case, all of a sudden we have pouring into these bacterial antigens and things. And these in the bloodstream, our body's meant to respond to dangerous strangers. So all of a sudden the blood is like, the immune system says, what the heck is here? We have corn antigens, we have bacterial coatings. This must be an alarm. So the immune system does what it's supposed to do, which is react to foreign invaders that shouldn't be there. And then it creates this inflammatory cascade that in some cases can cross react to self tissue and create autoimmunity. So I love that you frame that because to me, it all makes sense. And how we fix that is look at what environmental triggers led to this. Is there any bacterial overgrowth, fungal overgrowth, parasite infections, or things that are going wrong in that gut lumen? And what caused that permeability of the gut? And how do we shore up that gut integrity so that we aren't leaking loads and loads of antigens into the bloodstream, creating more of a, a risk for autoimmunity? Mm -hmm. You hit a lot of good things. So I want to talk about a lot of these things as we go. Sure. Um, one thing though, that I wanted to mention before we jump in there is when you're talking about the, these particles of food that, or bacteria, right? These, these things that are being broken down mm -hmm. by the gut, which normally should stay in the gut yeah. and they're getting inside of the body. Um, are, you're referring to molecular mimicry. Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Or are you talking about something a little bit different? Um, maybe go into a little bit detail about that. You got it. So molecular mim mimicry, we typically talk about with bacteria or parasites or other um, sort of infectious antigens where the mm. body sees this salmonella or it sees a lipopolysaccharide coating of a bacteria from your gut and it starts to attack like it should because it thinks it's a foreign invader. It mm. creates an antibody to that, but then that antibody cross reacts to your joint or to your brain or to your thyroid mm. and starts to attack self, even though it was meant to attack a foreign invader. Typically that's with the infection. The food antigens are a little different. You, I suppose you could have molecular mimicry, but typically what happens there is say a corn that's not completely digested or a gluten molecule gets into the bloodstream, body creates an antibody and those just create inflammation. Mm -hmm. And so when we decrease those foods while we're healing the body, then we decrease the inflammatory load of the cytokines and all the reactive molecules that are trying to attack that food mm -hmm. instead of the bad guys. Right, right. Okay. I, I appreciate that clarification. So it sounds like if somebody's listening to this, then one of the things that they really want to focus on is shoring up the integrity of that gut lining, right? Because you want it to maintain that protective sort of function that it's supposed to do. So we talked a little bit about what happens when there's inflammation and kind of, and the disruption of that lining. Um, so what kind of things can somebody do if they really want to protect that gut lining or to restore it if it's been damaged? Is that even possible? You know, what does that look like from the perspective of the patient? Yeah, well, one of the things I find in clinical practice, I'm sure you do too, is we know like glutamine. Glutamine is a fuel for enterocytes. It's something you can buy over the counter in pills or powders, and it's a good thing for leaky gut. However, if you have an infection or bacterial overgrowth or a parasite, or you're eating gluten all day long, mm. there's no amount of glutamine that you can take to restore the leaky gut. So yeah. while I will talk about nutrients that can help restore the integrity of those enterocytes, there's no way you can think just taking glutamine is going to fix a leaky gut until you get to the root cause of what's yeah. creating inflammation. And so what's creating inflammation could fall into the category of things like gluten's a big one. And the reason gluten's so problematic is because it's a very long, like I thought talk about pearl necklace, like polypeptide that mm -hmm. often our body should have the scissors to snip it into little one or two pearl 
pieces, but many people don't have that DPP-4 enzyme. And so you can't break it down properly and it becomes more inflammatory. And a lot of people have more issues now that wheat is grown with glyphosate and we produce a much more high gluten type of yield product. So the U.S. types of wheat that we grow are typically way worse for celiacs or non-celiac gluten sensitivity than they were hundred years ago. Um, so gluten's one, but then other uh, things like infection, if there's a SIBO or SIFO, the bacterial or fungal overgrowth in the small bowel, if there's a parasitic infection, which is hard to find, but can be present and can be present for decades if people don't know about it. Um, and then just other kinds of um, overgrowth in, this, in the um, colon or inflammation, like inflammatory bowel disease. So you have to find out what's, or for me, like chemotherapy or drugs mm -hmm. can do it too. So there's definitely drugs that can increase permeability. And if any of those things are happening, you can't really use the nutrients to restore until you fix that root problem. For sure. And I, I kind of, whenever we talk about supplements, I always need to be, you know, what you said yeah. is perfect because we need to say that there's supplements to the other things that you're mm -hmm. doing. Right. And probably first and foremost, in many cases is what you're putting into your body when, yeah. in the form of your diet. Right. Um, and I do want to talk about diet and kind of the types of diet that we might use to heal um, the gut and so on. But before I want to touch a little bit about uh, celiac and NCGIS, sure. as you mentioned previously. So in the case of Hashimoto's and other autoimmune diseases, I found, and maybe this is the case with you, and I'd love to hear your opinion, is that a lot of these patients do better when they remove celiac or sorry, when they remove gluten from their diet, even if they don't have an official diagnosis of celiac disease. So is this something that you're seeing as well? Where do you stand on this sort of gluten with autoimmune disease, maybe in the setting of Hashimoto's, but also maybe in the setting of just improving gut health in general? I love that you're talking about this because so many docs or docs patients go to their gastroenterologist and they're like, you don't have celiac. And so the patient's mm -hmm. like, okay, well then I can eat gluten. And there is a spectrum or a, a you know, a, a different variations of this. The true celiac, which I am one of those, um, absolutely can't have even a molecule of gluten because it definitely creates inflammation. But there's a lot of other people on that spectrum that react to gluten. And one of those is the non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Here's how I tell patients in my clinical practice. First of all, I'll check for a TTG, IgA, and IgG, which typically I just posted about this recently. If that is five times normal, you don't even need a biopsy now. It is so highly correlated with celiac. So that if you have a high TTG, IgA, or TTG, IgG, it is very likely that you have celiac without even getting an intestinal biopsy. But you can have anti-gliadin or anti-non-deaminated gliadin. Either one of those can be non-celiac, meaning you don't have complete villous atrophy. The like shag carpet that lines your gut isn't completely destroyed and you can still have significant sensitivity or creation of more risk of autoimmunity. And how I tell patients is I check the genes too. And there's a DQ2 and a DQ8 that we can test in blood. And if you have one of those, you're at higher risk for celiac, but here's how I explain it. It's like the, the two genes are like the center of a wagon wheel and all the spokes that come off that wagon wheel are autoimmune diseases. One spoke is celiac, but many of the other spokes are what we just said, Hashimoto's, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis, and any number of other autoimmune disease that we could name. So when you have the gene in the middle of the wagon wheel, you may never ever get the spoke that's called celiac, but you're still going to have a greater risk of developing any autoimmune disease if you have that genetic risk, because we know by nature that if someone has that gene, their HLA types, their Pac-Man in their gut, which are basically sensing is this good or bad when they see gluten, they get angry. It's like angry wolves. And so even if they don't have celiac or never develop villous atrophy, they're going to be at higher risk for irritating their immune system when they consume gluten. So then I give them the choice. I said, 
if you knew that getting gluten out of your diet could reduce your mortality by 30%, would you do it? Even if you didn't have celiac or didn't have autoimmunity and most people get it and they start to go gluten-free or, or understand that that does decrease risk of all autoimmunity. And the statistics say that all cause mortality, cancer, heart disease, you name it, causes of death are decreased by 70% in someone who has the genetics that goes on a gluten-free diet. That's huge. I mean, those numbers are, you know, astounding, really. And I, I, I tend to run into this problem sometimes with, with patients, or at least had in the past, and we're trying to get people to go gluten-free. And so it seems to be something that maybe was in, let's say, in vogue, probably, I don't know, maybe, gosh, seven, eight years ago. Every, it seemed like everyone was going gluten-free, right? Then that sort of replaced with the keto diet and yeah. you know, carnivore diet, even now, maybe a little bit. So these things kind of come up and down, but there's still a lot of relevance to going gluten-free. And I th think there's a lot of benefit as well. And so um, I, I actually really like the analogy that you mentioned with the spokes, because um, even if it's not specifically celiac disease that you're preventing or trying to stop, it could be something else, right? Yeah. In this case, maybe the people listening to this, maybe Hashimoto's, maybe mm -hmm. you know, some other type of autoimmune disease. Um, something that you brought up as well that I want to talk about just for a second, uh, see if you have an opinion on it, is just sort of the, the luck of the draw that a lot of women get when it comes to autoimmune disease, right? Because they tend to get it more frequently than men do. Um, do you have any insight as to why that may be? Some, sometimes I've heard maybe testosterone is playing a role. Um, maybe it has to do with the genes. I don't know if you had any, any input on that or insight on that. I do. Um, okay. One thing I didn't mention, another part of my story is I had mold toxicity. One of my offices flooded mm. before I moved. Massive issues with mold. I've recovered from that, but mold is a massive trigger of autoimmunity, of leaky gut, et cetera. I'm mentioning that because many people don't know. This is a part of my story. I don't always talk about right after the mold exposure, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Oh, wow. Latent adult. I was about 40 years old, type one, latent adult onset. I had all the antibodies for that. And I literally had an A1C that was you know, high, it was abnormal. Jeez. Now, once again, you know, this maybe will surprise you, maybe won't. I no longer, I have a normal A1C. I'm not on insulin. It's amazing. I, have, I feel like I've completely reversed that. Here's the mm -hmm. secret. I did the studies and I looked and one of the biggest factors for women being four times the amount of men in autoimmunity mm -hmm. was the testosterone levels, just mm -hmm. like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And I replaced my testosterone to normal levels, maybe just a little bit higher than normal, but pretty mm -hmm. normal for women. And that was one of the factors for me in reversing my type one diabetes. Awesome. I, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I feel like maybe I'm alone in that, but I, I have recommended testosterone replacement yes. therapy if, if it's yes. low, right? I yes. don't give it if it's high, Absolutely. Uh, but as a potential uh, treatment for really any autoimmune disease, but mm -hmm. I use it in the setting of Hashimoto's. Now I tend to find that a lot of women just probably across the board, mm -hmm. you know, uh, some women have low testosterone and some have high, especially if they're on that sort of PCOS spectrum. Mm -hmm. But at least my experience has been most, most women with autoimmune disease tend to have those lower levels. And so there's a lot of benefit, I think, to using the testosterone. And I've even dabbled with a little bit of like DHEA and other lighter yes. androgens as well. Um, have you tried those therapies as well, either personally or on patients? Absolutely. And again, I'm speaking as a breast cancer survivor that has right. done her research, right? Like that mm -hmm. could be risky, but I've, I monitor the levels. I take both DHEA and testosterone and norm to normalize. And interesting, as you well know, mold itself for men and women often lowers testosterone. So when I was diagnosed, I had almost zero testosterone. So it oh, was geez. definitely in need of getting back to physiological levels. And that's kind of the key is you get, like you said, when you replace it, checking levels, make sure you're normal physiologic. You don't need to be super physiological, but it absolutely makes a huge difference in women with autoimmunity.
Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's funny that the conversation kind of went yeah. here, but well, just, just one more question on the topic of sure. testosterone, especially in women, because I really feel like testosterone is kind of, at least marketing wise, has been dominated or directed towards men, right? But I do think that women also outside of the realm of autoimmunity, they also have some additional benefits that they can get from testosterone replacement yeah. therapy. Maybe can you speak to a little bit of the additional benefits or maybe why a woman might consider using testosterone replacement therapy and why it's not just solely for men? Sure. Well, of course, women have libido issues too, and testosterone's a great uh, solution for that. But mm -hmm. not only that, but bone loss and bone integrity, it's huge for maintaining bone and muscle. And as we age, we lose muscle, we get sarcopenic, and we actually gain body fat. And that doesn't do anything for metabolic syndrome, risk of diabetes, or even bone loss. So for many reasons, it's much more of an anabolic uh, type of thing, which builds muscle, builds tissues, mm -hmm. hair, skin, nails benefit. So all across the board, and especially just drive ambition follow through some of the cognitive benefits too. We see that with dementia, low estrogens and testosterone in women. So there's a myriad of effects in women as well as men. Now, are you using any uh, bioidentical hormones for like, let's say bias for treating menopausal type symptoms as well in your practice, or are you doing other yeah. types of hormone replacement therapy? Yes. So absolutely. I use all the hormones for women who need it and men too. Okay. Awesome. I, I know that kind of shifted off topic mm -hmm. a little bit. That's okay. So, <laughs> one thing I wanted to get back to, which you mentioned before was this, I, this concept of toxic load. So could you expand a little bit on this idea of toxic load, how that impacts perhaps gut health and even detoxification? What, what can you, or maybe just define it and then sort of explain it in layman's terms for those perhaps listening. Sure. Uh, and I love that you brought it back to that because it's very relevant for the thyroid patients that you treat, Hashimoto's mm -hmm. or any type of thyroid symptom. Our thyroid tends to be like the canary in the coal mine that is one of the most sensitive organs to toxic load. So what is toxic load? I always describe it as like a bucket and all of us are born with a different bucket capacity. Our bodies are actually created to detox. We're made as detox machines. So this mm -hmm. isn't something that we don't do or don't know how to do. We're actually created to do that. But the problem is when that bucket becomes full with various toxins, like for pesticides, organophosphates, phthalates, parabens, metals, etc. it starts to decrease the, uh, I think of the water level starts to go up. And when that water level reaches the top, it spills over into symptoms or diseases like autoimmunity, mm -hmm. gut integrity, um, et cetera, and even cognitive issues, energy issues, whatever we want to talk about could probably be affected by that toxic load. Mm -hmm. So as clinicians, one of the most exciting things is it's great to know what's in that bucket, but you don't necessarily need to identify all thousands 10,000 things that are in the bucket. All you have to do is start detoxifying and decrease that margin, decrease that water level. So that all of a sudden the patients have a little bit of space or margin left, because once you create more margin, the body will do what it needs to do anyway. So all you have to do is begin some basic detox. It's great to test to know what the toxins are, but mm -hmm. even if you don't, or even if you're out there listening and you don't have a functional minded doctor, you can still start basic detox protocols and things and decrease that load and buy yourself some margin. And then your body will come back to a more baseline normal um, place when that toxic load is decreased. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when it comes to detoxification, these sort of simple things, do you have any, any sort of tips that you might give somebody on how to decrease that toxic load to help improve just the overall function of the body, but also gut health? Yeah. So we can go supplements stuff and I'll talk about that in one second, but mm -hmm. I love simplicity. And I often mm -hmm. say clean air, clean water, clean food. It can go that simple. And often yes. people are real excited about a 21 day detox or this supplement mm -hmm. protocol. I'm all for that, mm -hmm. but it starts with what we put in our body. So it actually starts way simpler than that. Clean air. 80% of our toxic load is the air that we breathe. So having an air filter in your home, I recommend like a, a HEPA filtration with um, a, you know high MERV rating on your furnace or a standalone 
standalone filter. And if you get a standalone filter, you can get VOC filters that contain zeolite or charcoal and decrease the um, VOCs in the air. So that'd be like mycotoxins or formaldehydes that are off-gassing from materials, et cetera. I think we should all nowadays, and especially I'm in Colorado, we just had all kinds of wildfires. I know with California, every, everybody's had a lot more lately. Those have massive effects on our air quality. And so does a myriad of other things. So we cannot assume that our air quality is okay. I think we should probably in offices and homes have air filters in place. Mm -hmm. Clean water, we take that for granted, but whether you are drinking, if you're drinking tap water, think again, because our tap water is so mm -hmm. contaminated nowadays. Ideally, a whole house um, reverse osmosis filter is great, but not everybody can afford that. You mm -hmm. can get pitchers that are like clearly filtered has some, and there's some other, um, Berkey has a great one that are countertopper in your fridge that are affordable, mm -hmm. um, but you want to drink filtered water nowadays. It's almost essential. Um, so clean water, clean food, the things we put in our diet, um, you know, avoiding fast food, avoiding processed foods, avoiding wheat for many people, avoiding um, pesticides and chemicals. So eating organic, local and possible in season when possible. Mm -hmm. All of those things really make a difference and they don't cost all that much. You can start with simple things and um, do, you know, 80% of the, the good without a lot of supplements. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like preventative is a pretty big source of there. And then I, I, I think, you know, as you mentioned, you do have supplements that you can yeah. use. You maybe even um, far infrared sauna, sweating, you know, uh, ensuring you have proper stooling habits and things yeah. like that, right? Is that kind of in line with what kind of comes downstream for you? Yeah. So then the next phase would be sweating is huge. So whether mm -hmm. you do infrared sauna or workouts, or if you're not sweating, there's a problem. <laughs> that's an mm -hmm. yeah. issue. Yeah. So sweating and infrared sauna can be huge. Epsom salt baths, castor oil packs over your liver can be helpful. Even coffee enemas, which I learned in Switzerland, mm. people don't like to talk about it, yeah. but it's a powerful way to increase glutathione. Basic supplements I think about with detox are how do we raise glutathione? You can take it. You mm -hmm. can do precursors like N-acetylcysteine, glycine, glutamine back to the gut, mm -hmm. um, alpha lipoic acid, milk thistle. Those are all kind of liver and detox supportive things, um, broccoli sprouts or leafy greens, which are sources of sulforaphanes. Mm. Uh, and then uh, binders, I'm a huge fan of binders because many toxins that we have um, go into the bile and accumulate there. And then our bile is just reabsorbed with about 95% efficacy. And if we don't kind of um, stop that and pull it out through the stool with a binder that could be clay, charcoal, mm. zeolite, glycomannan, then sometimes we just reabsorb those toxins. That's awesome. So, so do you see that uh, in your practice, are you seeing a lot of patients who suffer from issues with the inability to de detoxify inside of their body? Is that like a, a big thing for a lot of people? Does it play a, a smaller role for most people? Kind of where is that, where are you seeing that in terms of its importance of all the things that people sort of have to think about their health? You know, where does that fall for you? I think it's huge. I think it's okay. the elephant in the room. And the reason for that is not that we don't detoxify or that we detoxify a worse than we used to. Mm -hmm. It's that our toxic environmental load, the amount of chemicals, literally hundreds of thousands of new chemicals are being put into the environment every year without proper testing. And they certainly aren't testing them synergistically in combination. So we're having these new to nature molecules and chemicals in our air and our water and our food supplies that are overloading our capacity. I think we saw that really well in the pandemic because all of a sudden, granted, this was a really nasty virus that was highly sure. contagious, but we saw a lot more people getting sick because our loads in our immune systems are, were way overloaded than they might've been 50 or hundred years ago. Mm. So that's why I said that things that we eat and do um, basic clean air, clean water, clean food really matter more than ever because that toxic environment is weakening our immune systems. And then we have a hard time fighting infections or detoxifying like we should be. Mm -hmm. And I think I see that a lot in patients, especially like you said, during the pandemic, but even before, you know, where you have people, they're riding on this 
the sort of the edge where they're just barely getting by and one little thing can tip them over, you know, whether it's the pandemic staying inside, the toxic yeah. loads goes a little bit high, maybe it's stress from, from taking care of somebody, whatever yes. it is, you know, dietary changes, all of a sudden, then they get tipped in and now they start developing gut issues and it just sort of spirals down and autoimmune disease and so on, right. And, and bad health. And so, um, I do, I do see a lot of that. And, um, it sounds like you might be seeing some of that as well in, in your practice. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, and again, I've been doing this about 20 years. Years ago, it was like a, a Hashimoto's or a menopause issue. Three months later, they were better. They need, yeah. didn't need to see me anymore. Nowadays, the people that come see me, probably like you, they've, they've, they're they really sick. They're the, mm. the level of uh, sickness and toxic overload is way greater than it used to be. And mm. it's way more complex. There's more layers. There's more infections. So I think it is just part of that environmental toxicity that's increasing complexity of the people mm. now that are getting sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I've seen a little bit of that. I would say, um, I haven't seen a lot of it just cause I don't think I've been in practice that, you know, long enough to really see trends necessarily, mm -hmm. but I have from other people who have been, been around yeah. and they've said that exact same thing. They're like, look you back in the day, it used to be, you know, totally different, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, let's, uh, I do want to get back to the gut health, but I do think sure. this, this kind of, um, ties in with it. And you mentioned the coffee enemas going to Switzerland, yeah. kind of doing, uh, it sounded like doing detoxification there. If, if I understood what you mentioned pre uh, previously, but maybe could you talk a little bit about coffee enema and yeah. if somebody who never has heard about this, maybe yeah. they're kind of like, what, what is going on? Maybe explain a little bit about that, sure. how it's maybe supporting detoxification in the liver or kind of what, how it's working inside of the body and its benefits. I love it. I'm got a big smile because MDs, we don't talk about coffee enemas, right? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> so it's so funny because I've gotten real comfortable and how I, I'll tell you my little story. So I've been two years, I went for a two week retreat in the Swiss mountain clinic mm -hmm. um, in the Southern um, Alps of, uh, of Switzerland with this amazing German team of physicians that did basically liver gallbladder cleanse for the week. And they had amazing therapies, a lot of the stuff we do here, but also other, you know, um, colon hydrotherapy and coffee enemas, mm -hmm. and then lots of amazing foods, um, auricular acupuncture, and then herbs and treatments and protocols. So that week or two that you were there, you'd get this incredible protocol. You'd come home, you know, detoxed and feeling great, eating great food, hiking in the Swiss Alps. That's One amazing, of the yeah. things though, here's why I talk about coffee enemas. Um, I went my first year and I was by far the youngest person. The average age was like 95. I mean, oh, wow. I'm, I'm exaggerating, but like <laughs> yeah, a, lot, yeah. I, a lot of people in their 80s yeah. or in their uh -huh. late 70s, and these were healthy people overall, but generally like back here, when I would treat those kinds of people, I would be go more carefully, more slowly, you Absolutely. know, better advanced age. Mm -hmm. And I saw these people like flying through with, with no problem, these intense detox protocols. And I'm like, why in the world, how in the world are these elderly people doing so well at this massively intense detox? Mm -hmm. And I realized one of the things they were doing every day was if they, if patients wanted to, they could do coffee enemas in the room. They had all the, you know, um, uh, kits and everything there. And then they also did colon hydrotherapy once per week with a professional. Mm -hmm. And I realized, you know, that because our liver gallbladder bio um, transformation access is all about gut and stool and, and part of it. Mm -hmm. um, we don't really um, assist that as much here in the U S and like I said, especially not in allopathic medicine. Mm -hmm. And I realized that was one of the things that was allowing them to do so well with such an intense protocol. And I said, why are we not talking about this here? And then I came back here and I looked online and all I could find was this brew the coffee, hang the pole, cool the coffee. It was a mess and an incredible half a day ordeal. I'm like, who's going to do that? Yeah. Too complicated. So Right. So yeah. I started importing the kits from Switzerland. All they are is this wonderful BPA free bottle that has a tube and you just fill it in with this instant clean organic with charcoal coffee mixture, shake it up and squeeze it and you're done. It's like the easiest mm -hmm. thing in the world. So I started number one, made it easy because that's what they did there. And number mm -hmm. two, I found for my patients with mold and severe toxicity, it was one of those, like you mentioned, Epsom salt baths or infrared sauna or coffee and they are all in the same class. We think about mobilization of toxins. That's easy. We take supplements. 
we do the protocols, but we can mobilize. And if we're not excreting, we get stuck. We feel horrible. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I learned is like the mobilization, that's what we have down. We don't have the excretion down as well. And those excretion things I think are harder because they involve like dry brushing, lymphatic drainage, lymphatic massage, castor oil packs, coffee enemas. But by adding those into the protocol, people tolerated the detox a lot better. That's, that's awesome. And I, I, I definitely agree with you. I kind of had like this internal threshold of age where it was like above 65 got a lot more difficult or I had to be a lot more careful. Yes. You know? And, and 65 is not that old, you know, no. like <laughs> it really isn't. And you know, you go, if you're treating patients in the hospital, the, like you said, the average age is easily in the eighties, you know, but, but I tend to, you got to be pretty careful with them at least here. So that's really interesting to hear. And when I, whenever I have personal experiences like that, it really sort of changes the way I think about things and what is possible. You know, yes. I, I sometimes get limited in terms of like what is possible just because of my world and what, what I'm seeing visually. But if you go somewhere else and you're like, suddenly, you know, it's like a light bulb goes off. You're like, well, it could be like this. Why does it have exactly. to be this way? It doesn't have <laughs> exactly. to be this way. It could be so much yeah. better. And, and when it comes to coffee enemas, I, I've never actually done one myself. Yeah. I've heard a lot about it. I think it was from Dr. Gonzalez, uh, who yeah. is deceased now. He talked a lot mm -hmm. about it in the in treatment of cancer. My understanding was um, it, it through the venous network that's um, in the areas, it comes back up to the to liver and supports uh, probably phase two detoxification. I'm not exactly sure. I don't know if you know the physiology oh, yeah, in terms of yeah, how it's working. That's what helped me too to understand like why in the world would this be? Yeah, how, how is why it helpful? We, or why haven't we heard about it, right? Mm -hmm. And again, I think it's because um, just medicine hasn't really talked about that. But bottom line is this, when you get that enterohepatic circulation stimulated, your body goes back, it's connected to the liver and your, your production of glutathione goes up by 600%. Mm. So okay. you're basically inducing your body to dump bile and produce more glutathione. So you're kind of inducing that pathway to be more active. And usually... I mean, in rare cases, if someone has electrolyte disturbances, that would be a reason not to do it. And mm -hmm. if patients are really, really weak in state or there's an issue, maybe I do it once a week or once a month versus multiple times. Mm -hmm. But generally, it's quite well tolerated too, which is nice. It's safe. <laughs> Now, do you see the, my ears are perking up here, especially in the setting of treating something like Hashimoto's because yeah. they tend to, they tend to have problems with free radicals and the thyroid mm -hmm. and the glutathione is potentially helpful there. So the glutathione production from the liver is, do you, do you see any benefit in systemic autoimmune diseases? In other words, is that glutathione mm -hmm. staying localized or does it, you know, go throughout the body? Do you think there would be any benefit from the treatment of an autoimmune disease aside from let's say gut health and detoxification and using something like a coffee enema regularly? Absolutely. Because again, that glutathione production is definitely total body. It's where the liver produces it, but it's going to, it's basically like just gently tapping the whole detox pathway mm -hmm. and getting a good response. But also, like I said, mobilizing an excretion, you're doing both parts of that, not that just the mobilization. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. And so, and you did mention that you have those available. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah, we do. And it's so funny because I didn't do this for a profit, but because yeah. literally we barely make anything because I have to import them, but right. it's because there's none of them like it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. at drjillhealth.com, we sell them and certainly people can buy them. And all I do is just try to get them here, um, awesome. but it's easy to, and they're easy to use. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you have autoimmune disease, especially Hashimoto, since a lot of people will, um, that's a potential, uh, I think a big potential game changer for these people. And um, of course, combined with everything else that we've talked about, diet, yeah. um, supplements, healthy, you know, sleep and so on. Um, but that's definitely an interesting thing. I'm gonna have to look into that a lot more, do a lot of research. So I'm really grateful you brought that up and uh, kind of, because I've heard about it before, but didn't really completely right. understand it. Just sort of was like peripherally aware of it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of go back uh, to the gut health just while we're kind of closing up here and talk a little bit about gut test, gut health testing. Um, and so I see a lot of patients who, who they know something's up in their gut. Maybe they have constipation, acid reflux. Maybe they just have pain, things like that. What is somebody going to do in that situation to really figure out what is wrong? Um, because we know 
in order to feel better, we kind of have to direct treatment, right? You can, you can do some shotgun approaches to gut health, although, you know, with diet and things like that, potentially, even if you don't know exactly what's wrong, but what type of tests are you using to help identify the main problem in those people who have these gut problems? Yeah. So, um, I usually do a pretty good battery of tests because people have been other places and tried mm -hmm. other things. So the typical patient who comes in with any gut symptoms will have um, a stool test. And I'll tell you about some of the main markers that we want to see there. Mm -hmm. um, and then also organic acids, which will do some metabolites of both yeast and bacteria, neurotransmitters and vitamins. Mm -hmm. And then I also do blood work. So with the stool test, some of the things I'm looking at are obviously the bacterial contents and any overgrowth. And that's typically colon bacteria because we're testing from the colon mm -hmm. and not the small bowel. So you can't really diagnose the SIBO or bacterial mm -hmm. overgrowth in the small bowel. Other things I look at there are, are protein in the stool. If people are um, low hydrochloric acid, they may be spilling protein. Or if they have low pancreatic elastase, their pancreas isn't secreting enzymes properly. And both of those things are upstream things that need to be dealt with with digestion and breaking down food, or you increase that same antigenic load. Um, other things are short-chain fatty acids, um, which if are very low, um, important to improve with um, things like butyrate, uh, mm -hmm. and also inflammatory markers like calprotectin and uh, eosinophilic protein X, sometimes lactoferrin, because that'll kind of differentiate. This is a typical IBS or inflammatory bowel person, and those are very different. So Crohn's and colitis are a whole different ballgame than just mm -hmm. your typical IBS. So that stool will give us that information. And then you can, of course, treat with drugs or medications or herbs if there's overgrowth or problems with the enzyme production or the hydrochloric acid. The organic acids will tell me a little bit more detail about the whole body, especially maybe up uh, in the small bowel. Mm -hmm. And you can look for fungal markers or bacterial markers that you may not see in the stool. That can be really helpful. And then the blood work, I often test for H. pylori, either um, mm -hmm. breath, stool, or IgG, IgM, IgA. And those can all be done in a routine blood work. I often check for candida, IgG, IgA, IgM as well to see if there's antigens to those. Um, and you can do um, some of the basic CBC, CMP, make sure absorption, liver enzymes are okay, pancreatic um, enzymes like lipase and amylase to make sure the pancreas isn't inflamed. So that whole slew usually gives me a good um, idea. And then if they do have symptoms of IBS and they've never been diagnosed or treated, we can do a breath test to rule out SIBO. And that's key because SIBO is a really common thing with autoimmunity and treating that will make a big difference in symptoms that look like IBS. Mm -hmm. And I do, I do want to talk a little bit about SIBO and CIFO um, yeah. just here for a second, just because in the thyroid population, just due to the decreased kinetics of the bowel that thyroid, low thyroid function can cause and also low stomach acid, I see a ton of patients with, with SIBO and CIFO. And I think it's, I think it's more uh, common, kind of more accepted nowadays, but I'd say go back five years, it was sort of like a, a less, yeah. less known diagnosis. So maybe could you discuss a little bit about what these conditions are and sort of how they manifest and maybe how they're a little bit different from other gut conditions that most people might be aware of? Yeah, so I'm so glad you mentioned that because it's super common. Um, mm -hmm. So we have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. There's a couple types. There's a hydrogen predominant type. There's a methane predominant type that they are now calling IMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth, because methanogens are technically not bacteria. Mm -hmm. And that type typically causes more constipation than diarrhea, whereas these hydrogen 
predominant type causes of diarrhea. And there's a new kit on the block that we've had around for a while, but we've never had to test or been able to test it. Now we can, and it's hydrogen sulfide SIBO. So there's three different types. Mm. Ask your doctor to get a three um, hour and three gas breath test, because you're going to get more of a comprehensive diagnosis. If you do the three gases that I just mentioned, and mm. also the three hour test and see, and that's the basic way to diagnose it. Now we know from Dr. Pimendel's research that 60% of IBS has an underlying cause of SIBO. So it's really common if you've been diagnosed with IBS. The second thing is many of those cases are post-infectious, which means you go to Hawaii or you go to Costa Rica and you get a bug, you get a gastroenteritis, and then every since then you're not the same, you have symptoms. And what can happen is your body cross-reacts to that salmonella or shigella or bacteria, and then cross-reacts to the migrating motor complex, which is the thing that has a motility in your small bowel and keeps you from having stagnation and overgrowth of bacteria. So often after an infection, people will develop this IBS and it turns into SIBO. Um, now SIBO is a cousin, it's fungal overgrowth, not bacteria. And these two can coexist. And you mentioned thyroid. Thyroid, even if we decrease our body temperature and are mildly hypothyroid, we call it subclinical, by about a half a degree, it can cause massive proliferation of yeast. Yeast take advantage of that slightly decreased body temperature. So it's super common to have because of lack of motility due to thyroid um, issues or due to the body temperature to have both SIBO and SIFO. Mm -hmm. And the treatments involve medications for SIBO or herbs. And then for um, SIFO, the same thing. If you have both, antibiotics may make your SIFO worse. So you kind of got to know which one you're dealing with and either use meds to cover both or herbs that would cover both. And in, in my experience, it's been a little bit difficult to treat these conditions. And especially if you don't treat the underlying problem, yeah. which led to it, right? So in the case of thyroid, what I'll tell them is you've got to op optimize your thyroid medication, because if you leave your motility decrease, then the problem is just going to keep coming back, right? It's going to keep coming yeah. back. And so I see a lot of recurrence of SIBO and SIFO. Is that something you're seeing? Do you see difficulty in treating it? Or, um, you know, what's your, your experience there? 100%. And I always think of upstream, we have digestion absorption. So basically pancreatic enzyme, a uh, protein malabsorption. If you're not uh, digesting food, you're going to have it recur. And then the motility issue. So migrating motor complex, if you're not having good motility, you're going to have it recur and things like lotus naltrexone, lotus urethromycin, procalipride, or even herbals like ginger or um, iburogas, those are all things that can help with that motility. But all of those things must be addressed or you will frequently have recurrence. And then you mentioned something that not a lot of docs are aware of, but clearly you are, and that's the thyroid. Absolutely, 100%. If someone is subclinical, untreated hypothyroid, they will not get better until you treat the thyroid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's obviously we see a lot of that just with the, the people that are listening to this. Mm -hmm. um, when we, we close up here, I got one more question I want to ask you about since you kind of you kind of have a pretty broad experience. I'm really impressed by the different types of therapies that you've been you know exposed to in your life, even the things that you're doing mm -hmm. on yourself. And so maybe you kind of will, uh, maybe you familiar with this sort of thing, but sometimes when I think about treating gut health, I also think about the vagus nerve and maybe even physical therapy or mm -hmm. physical manipulation to try and improve um, the, the conduction of nerves and so on to get things kind of moving. So do you think there's any place for, let's say, even massage therapy or chiropractic work or osteopathic therapy in treating these sort of gut dysfunctions or gut issues? 100%. Um, one of the things we didn't mention is obstruction can happen or lack of motility with adhesions. Mm -hmm. So I'm frequently recommending visceral physical therapy, which can visceral, be done yeah. with a chiropractor or a physical therapist that's trained and they'll actually do abdominal massage for mm -hmm. adhesions because, and especially that ileocecal region, if you've ever had abdominal surgery, hysterectomy for women, other groin, like uh, hernia surgery for men, um, that can absolutely impair motility. So that's huge. 
And then acupuncture can treat vagal nerve. Did you know there's this interesting thing I found the last several years that some of the tick-borne infections can actually infect the vagal nerve and mm, cause no. chronic dysfunction like ehrlichia and anaplasma. Mm. So there's a whole other set of infections that can affect the vagus nerve as well. But you're right on. I think whatever way we treat that vagus nerve, it can be really, really critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, the vagus nerve for those people that be maybe not accustomed to anatomy, it's really important for motility and just sort of the innervation to that gut. And so I see a lot of people, at least in my experience, who have had issues, maybe even just tight muscles or whatever it is, they just aren't getting the movement that they should. Maybe lymphatics are being slowed down, like all these sort of physical problems that can occur. Yeah. Like Dr. Jill said, uh, they, they can get visceral motility or they can have adhesions, other types of physical problems inside of the gut. And so I do think it's, it's beneficial. At least I've seen that. And it, it sounds like based on what I'm hearing from you is that treating the gut is very comprehensive, right? You've got yeah. diet supplements, potentially prescription medications, um, mm -hmm. antifungals, supplements, botanicals, and so on, um, physical therapy, even to some degree. So uh, I think, I definitely think it's possible to get there, but um, it can be difficult in some cases, especially if you have underlying things that aren't being treated. Um, so before we wrap up, do you have any, any last things? Then we'll talk about how people can kind of, kind of find it or get a hold of you. Do you have any last words of wisdom when treating gut health or gut problems that you might share with uh, the audience? Sure. Well, I just think I want to leave you with, I mean, 20 years ago, I had Crohn's and I have for every day of my life since then been very, very like uh, proactive in treating my gut. I feel like it's in great shape, but I still eat a very, very clean diet. I take a ton of supplements. So I don't want you to lose hope or feel like you do an eight week course and you didn't, and it goes, it goes away, but then comes back that you haven't just know you for people who have issues like my history, you might have to be pretty persistent, but you can get to a place where you're functioning well, you feel great. Your gut functions amazing, even despite some very significant setbacks. So don't give up is the bottom line. I love that. And uh, thank you so much. And your, your story is, your story is so inspiring because like you said, you, you've gone through quite a bit and, yeah. <laughs> and you, to be where you're at now, that's amazing. You, you, know, you, you look, you look awesome. So that's so, that's really good. Now, um, Dr. Jill, where can people get, a, get, where can they reach you? Um, mm -hmm. Are you, if someone's interested in being treated by you, can they, can do they, you know, can they get a hold of your clinic or, you know, what about your website, podcast, anything sure. like that? Thank you. And thanks for mentioning, I've been working for 10 years on content. So my website's yeah. loaded with free stuff. For it it all is. Yeah, just yeah. loaded. And you can search the blog. So jillcarnahan.com is the blog and the clinic site. Tons of free information there. I have a new YouTube channel for the last two years. We have 100 episodes or more of professionals. If you just search my name with YouTube, you'll find the channel. Would love for you to subscribe. It's all free. And then lastly, I mentioned Dr. Jill Health is actually our retail store. And we do have like the coffee anima kits and things there as well. And thank you for asking. No problem. I'm going to include the link to the coffee enema. So hopefully, uh, hopefully they don't uh, blow, blow them all yeah. up. The <laughs> but I, I, I think that I, think I have to tell you a really quick, funny story. Again, yeah, no go ahead. Knows. So yeah. I know a lady who flew back and forth. She's got a private jet. She's has the funds um, sure, to Switzerland yeah. with me and met her. She sent me a picture about six months, maybe six weeks ago. And she yeah. had the director of the Swiss Mountain Clinic. They were coming here to visit in her private jet. She said, Hey, Jill, we're flying here by private jet. And guess what's in the cargo? We brought dozens and dozens of coffee enema kits awesome. for you by private jet. And I'm like, yay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, that's awesome. Just got uh, a shipment in by private. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. All right, good. Well, if anyone, if anyone uh, needs to get them, they know where to get them. It's at uh, your website. So, all right. Well, that's uh, kind of all we have for you guys today. Thank you so much, Dr. Jill, for coming. And uh, otherwise, we'll see you guys in the next one. You're welcome. Thank you. No problem.